BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, if you went to public schools in the 80s and 90s, you went under the educational policies of the Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Clinton administrations. Columbia University Teachers College professor Bettina Love's new book is an indictment of those policies and the impact of the last four decades of education reform on black students. Called Punish for Dreaming, it's an accounting of the damage she says they caused and a call for repair. We'll listen back to my September conversation with Love and hear what you remember about the way you or other black students were treated in your high school years. Forum is next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Columbia University professor Bettina Love says that for too many black students in the 80s and 90s, high school was not a place of learning, but of harm. A place where students were punished with low expectations, physical violence, and suspensions. It was when the Reagan administration issued its 1983 A Nation at Risk report, which Love describes as full of alarmist language about the failures of U.S. public schools that proposed a get-tough stance toward them. Love's new book, Punished for Dreaming, is both an unflinching analysis of that time and a personal reflection. She went to public schools in the 80s and 90s. Dr. Love, welcome to Forum. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you here. You examine a lot of your own experiences for this book of your student years, but I am curious if there is a moment that really stands out to you that you'd credit with the impetus for writing this. Oh, yes. Um, Thank you for that question, because it really it's an important question of how this book is written and why this book is written. So I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, New York. And I take that really serious being from Rochester, New York. Like I, I go hard. You know, when you're not from New York City, you're from the outs of that. You take it really hard because nobody recognizes you outside of being from New York City. So I'm from Rochester, New York. And I went to a really huge high school. I went to vocational high school. 
So our school was so big, it had a plane inside of the high school. We had an actual gas station. Like, it was a vocational high school. It was huge. And I was 14 years old. I entered high school, 1993, 1994 school year. And I entered with almost 600, 700 kids. We were a huge freshman class. And four years later, we graduated about 160, 180 kids. Wow. That's a 25% graduation rate. And I remember distinctly walking across the stage, because I barely walked across the stage myself, let's be clear. And I remember distinctly saying to myself, where is everybody? What happened to everybody? Why is this happening? What's going on? And so that has been always the driver. I think that's why I became an educator. I think that's why I became a researcher. I think that's why I started wanting to understand reform in the 80s and the 90s. Because I've always been curious about what happened to all of my classmates when I looked out that afternoon to an auditorium that should have been packed. And you talk to a lot of your classmates. You talk to Zook, and I want to ask you about <laughs> Zook. Zook was born in 1976, an awesome basketball player. Yeah. So what did she tell you about what it was like for her to be a black kid in a public school in Rochester yeah. during the Reagan and, you know, H.W. Bush years and so on? You know, one of the first things Zook says to me when I interview her, she says, I was no child left behind before no child was left behind. And that just, I mean, Zook is also very funny. She has, she's very clever. She always has a comeback. She always has a snappy thing to say. So it, it wasn't off brand, but it was so on brand mm. for what I was trying to understand about this book and for someone to look back on their childhood and say, I was no child left behind before no child left behind. And Zook is an interesting story because she becomes part of how I understand how students are punished in this country. So there's a huge scandal at my high school, my freshman year, the idea that Many of the that Zook and some of the male athletes did not go to class. So we were a winning basketball team. We were like 22 and one. And by the end of the season, all our games got taken away. And Zook had a disciplinary hearing. And at this disciplinary hearing, teachers and administrators were telling her all allegedly all these things she did and did not do. And Zook hits a teacher at that disciplinary hearing. But what, this, so this is after they've taken the wins they've away, taken they've the nullified win, they, everything yes. that she'd worked for. Yes, scholarships. Like, we're, we're, we're the best women's basketball team in the city. We're going on to win everything. Like, we got the team, and everything is taken, everything is taken away. And now she's at a disciplinary hearing by herself, no parents, she's there, and she hits a teacher. But what, we re- what I learned later on is that before this ever happened, Zook in seventh grade, sixth grade, was physically assaulted by a teacher. She was put in a chokehold and body slammed by a teacher. So when she threw that punch in 12th grade, that wasn't just a punch for that moment. It was a punch for the last 13 years of her schooling. No teacher had ever said that she was smart. No teacher ever believed in her. The only place she ever felt safe was on the basketball court. And so I used Zook as my friend to really kind of show what was happening at that time. Our schools were shifting and changing and punishing children, punishing children with you know, extreme amounts of expulsion from school and being expelled from school, punishing children with physical harm, punishing children with low expectations. Like all of these things play on a child. We're 14, 15 years old. We're children and not being seen as children. So you never had a teacher really reach out to say, hey, 
are you okay, when they would notice that maybe she was affected by something like the kind of incident that happened to her being body slammed by a teacher? Yes. I mean, this is a child that's in trauma. This is a child that needs love and affection and care. And she never got that. And so basketball and her teammates were the only place that really she felt loved and safe was on that basketball court. Yet, as a student yourself, at that time, the only way that you could really interpret Zook was as a cautionary tale, you say. So what impact did it have on you? So let me be very clear. I wanted to be Zook. So if Zook was skipping class, I was skipping class. (laughs) If Zook was playing cards in the lunchroom all morning... I was playing cards in lunchroom all morning because I wanted to be Zook. She was a senior. I was a freshman. Um, she had all the latest sneakers. She was funny. She was popular. So I was going right down Zook's path. And when that happened, it changed everything that I knew because I saw how she could be thrown away. I saw how you could be so talented and everybody loves you. And then that moment where you do something wrong as a child you can get thrown away. And that was really my cautionary tale. And if you talk to Zook right now, she's one of my dearest, closest friends still. She will always say, you know, everybody calls me love. Love, you're here because of me. She'll say, she'll say that right now to me. You're here because of me. And she's right, because it really helped me understand just how vulnerable I was. And one mistake uh, could change the course of my life. And as black children and children of color, we don't get to make mistakes. So you went to class, focused on getting into college and playing basketball, squeaked by on the SAT. Squeaked by, yes. (laughs) But when you go to Old Dominion University in Norfolk, like when did you start to realize um, that even there you were being seen a certain way, you were being tracked? Yeah. It was really my sophomore year. You know, my freshman year, I was just so happy to be at the number two school in the country to play women's basketball. You know, it was, I was living my dream. And uh, I was extremely skinny. Uh, couldn't put on a pound. Couldn't put on a muscle. Came back my sophomore year. Everybody seemed to got bigger and stronger but me. And I started to realize I'm not going to play. <laughs> it got really clear in my mind that maybe this basketball dream is not going to work. So I may need to find another dream. I can eat all the protein shakes and all the protein bars, but it just was not happening. And I stayed on the floor my freshman year. So by my sophomore year, I come back and I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe I should take school a little bit more seriously. And so I start to examine the classes that I'm in. And I never thought about the classes that I was taking. You know, I'm you know, my, my mother and father did not go to college. My sister was the first one to go to college. So I didn't have much experience or many conversations around what college was like. And so I start to realize that I'm in all the classes with all the male athletes. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, you know, my classes first aid and then I take outdoor recreation and then I take indoor recreation. I said, Well, <laughs> these don't really sound like college classes. <laughs> And so then I go ask my uh, teammates on the women's basketball team what classes they're taking. Oh, we're taking chemistry and biology and pre-med and journalism. So, well, I want to take class. I would like to take those classes. And so I go to the uh, athletic advisor and he says to me, you know, I go and I say, listen, I don't want to take these classes anymore. I want to take, you know, different classes. I want to major in something different. And no shade to anybody that's a recreation and leisure major, but that's not what I wanted to do. And so he said, well, listen, you, you're here to play basketball. 
You're from the inner city. You went to an inner city school. You're here to play basketball. And I could, I just, I, I could not believe, first of all, it was so clear. Like, he didn't pull any punches with me. And then second, I did everything they asked me to do. I got decent grades. You know, I wasn't a, a scholar, you know, but I, I got enough to come to college. I took the classes you told me to take. I got the scholarship. I, I did everything you asked me to do. And now you're still going to deny me an education that I could, that I want for the rest of my life just to play basketball. So here I was again faced with, you know, these circumstances of because I am black and because I'm from the inner city, this is the destiny for you. And we've chosen that for you. And so at that moment, I called my athletic director from my high school. Her name was uh, Judy Knight. She was my guardian angel. She was my everything. She passed away uh, first year of COVID. Mm, um, but she sorry. was also like my mother. And I called Miss Knight and Miss Knight said, um, I'm on my way. And she came down. And she spoke to the coach, and she never told me to this day what she said. And Miss Knight said, "Um, you got to get out of here. Mm. You got to wow. get out of here." Wow. And Miss Knight made some calls. And now this is the time. Anybody that's young that's listening, we didn't have the portal back in the day, so it was <laughs> it was hard to transfer. You didn't have the portal, right? You had to make some calls underground. You had to do some things to get up out of there. And I had a friend who was going to the University of Pittsburgh, and Miss Knight made some calls and got me an interview and drove me from. You know, I got came back to Rochester. She drove me down to Pittsburgh. They didn't have any more um, scholarships to fly people. And so I had to do it on my own. This night took me. And the coach said to me, you're going to be a scholar first and an athlete second. I had never heard that. And then we had eight hours of mandatory study hall a week. If you missed a minute, you had a mile to run. And if every woman on the basketball team missed a minute, there was cumulative. So you had 13 miles to run. So we were, so we went to study hall like 10 hours. We didn't want any problems with anybody. And I became a scholar at that moment. We're talking with Bettina Love, William F. Russell professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. Her new book is Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. I want to hear, listeners, does what Dr. Love describes about her high school and college experience resonate with you? Did you feel you were tracked academically in high school, labeled or excessively disciplined like Zook? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org, or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about educational policies that took hold in the 80s that have caused lasting harm, says Dr. Patina Love, who's written a new book called Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. That looks at the last four decades of educational reform. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What do you want to ask or tell Patina Love about your experience as a student? Maybe her experiences are resonating with you. You can email forum at KQED or give us a call, 866-733-6786. So I want to explore the historical context that you highlight that you say leads to your and your classmates' experiences. And I was struck by the fact that one of those is Brown v. Board of Education. And it's not the decision itself so much. It is the reaction, you say, to the decision. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, I think... We see Brown versus the Board of Education, the 1954 landmark case, as this incredible case that desegregates schools and a case that really lifts up democracy in this country. And it's it's a landmark case, but I don't think we talk enough about the backlash of that case. So really quickly, you know, I, I don't want to be a historian and, and bore <laughs> folks with numbers, but I, I think it's important to say that before Brown versus the Board of Education, in the 17 segregated states, black teachers made upwards of 50 percent of black teachers. Mm. Linda Tillman work tells us that, uh, you know, black women teachers and black teachers in general uh, were teaching about two million children. And there was about 90,000 of them. And we also know from Lindsay uh, Farnsworth's work was that black teachers were highly credentialed. They were highly credentialed. And so you had an unbelievable workforce of black teachers who were really were teaching seven days a week. They were teaching five days a week in school, seven days, I mean, on Saturdays in the community, and on Sundays probably going to three to four churches. So they were doing some unbelievable work with little to no resources. And after Brown versus the Board of Education, you see the gutting of black teachers. You see the gutting of black teacher unions. Black teacher unions in the South particularly were very strong. They were part of the civil rights movement. And so after Brown, almost... 38,000, 40,000 teachers, black teachers are gone. They're given the pink slip. You also see 90% of black principals gone. And it's devastating to the black community. It's devastating to black education. It's devastating to teachers and, and children. The curriculum, the relationships, those middle class jobs, all those things are gutted. And we don't talk enough about how that now relates to education today. For the last 40 years, we have not seen black educator, educators above 10%. Black males make up less than 2%, like 1.8% of all teachers are black males. And on top of that, black women make up 6 to 8%. This is terrifying when you think about what we know what happens when you have black teachers in the classroom. There's a great study out of American University that says if you are a low-income black boy and you have at least two elementary elementary teachers, black elementary teachers in grades, elementary, the likelihood that you will graduate and go off to college increases by 32 to 39 percent, just having two black teachers in elementary school. So when we don't have black teachers, um, and the research also tells us that having black teachers benefits all children, not just black children. 
So this is really consequential, what Brown gutted for not only black teachers and black communities, but also education in this country. And then it sounds like even in schools that they tried to desegregate, they did not consider the experience. Mm -hmm. They were not prepared also for the experiences of black students going into these environments. And you very much connect this personally to your mother, Patty. Patty. Yeah, that's my mother. You know, my mom, and I didn't know this going into writing this book. I had no clue. My mother had always said in passing, like, I desegregated schools. And I've always like, okay, Ruby Bridges. So I never (laughs) paid her any attention. And then I started writing this book. And I was like, you always say that you desegregated. What are you talking about? And she tells me this unbelievable story. And so one of the consequences of Brown was that these black teachers had nowhere to teach in the South. So a good number of them came north. They came to New York and they kept going up and they came to Rochester, New York. So my mom gets her first black teacher because these teachers come from the South. And the first thing she says, which all the research, all the data says, oh, they are strict and they can teach. And they're so intelligent. They are so smart. But, oh, they are so strict. And my mom starts rattling off all these black teachers that she had because of Brown and they couldn't teach anymore. But then, uh, you know, the schools are still overcrowded and under-resourced. So my grandparents decide to send my mom to the white school in, uh, in, uh, in Rochester. And my mom lasts maybe six months. The racism, um, the, the violence, the harassment is so bad that she goes back to the overpopulated, crowded black school. And by 16, my mom drops out. Yeah. And it was so clear in the way that you wrote about that, just how deeply it affected her. You know, my mom is probably the toughest woman you ever going to meet. You know, I always say when the end of the world comes, it will be roaches, styrofoam, and patty. (laughs) Um, She's tough as nails, man. And so to see my mother still crying, um, sitting on her porch and telling me this story in her sundress, still crying, still upset, still mad. And even as her daughter is an educator and a professor, she never told me this story. And so it was a lot to understand just the scars that are still there. And I think as a country, we forget that the generation that integrated schools, they're not 200 years. They're here. They're alive and well. Ruby Bridges, you know, one of the names that we shout out, she's like 68 years old, looking good. So I think we forget. We think this is such a past. Like this is, you know, this happened centuries ago. Brown versus the Board of Education next year will be 70. That's it. That's it. 70 years that we've been fumbling at trying to integrate schools in this country. Well, talk about the report that also becomes a central thesis in in your book, which is that report from the Reagan years called A Nation at Risk. Mm-hmm. Because you talk with a lot of people about their personal experiences, which really shed light on what is happening inside the schools. But you also really look deeply at the policies that are shaping these kinds of experiences as well. So what impact did that report have? What did it say? You know, I think A Nation at Risk is probably one of the most consequential educational reports that we've had in the last 50, 60 years. It's, it's critical that we understand how we got here. And so A Nation at Risk is the Reagan administration. And the report basically says that our country, public education system, is failing so badly that it could cause a war. Now, this type of warmongering, like it, it, we are, this, is, this thing is going to hell in a handbasket. And what are we going to do? I mean, it causes national 
concern about public education. But the data isn't quite there for this national concern. The data is cherry picked. There's a lot of data that says we're doing okay. There's a lot of data that says we're doing well. All that data is not included. It's excluded from the report. And it's a very much a alarmist report about public education. And what we know at that time was that it was intentional to make public education seem as a failing public good. And so that report becomes consequential because it opens up the floodgates to this very idea that this system needs reform. And now you hear like it, it opens up the idea that we got to reform public education, that this thing is failing so badly. Maybe big business can come in. Maybe corporate America could help. Right. So it opens up that type of language and we start to see education reform take shape in the 80s. And talk about just some of the ways it takes shape. Like what are the aspects of reform that emerge? Well, you know what the book really is trying to say that you have education reform and crime reform merging in the 80s. And so you have a nation at risk. Well, excuse me, let me back up. 1982, you have a war on drugs. So 1982, Reagan releases and talks about a war on drugs, which we know is really a war on black people and people of color. By 1983, you have this report that says it's a nation at risk. Also in 1983, you have the D.A.R.E. program. The D.A.R.E. program, which said, listen, there's some good people, there's some bad people. And we want little kids to come and snitch on those bad people. Those bad people should be put in jail. And so this is actually a program, a nationwide program. Now, the reason why it's important that we talk about the D.A.R.E. program, because the D.A.R.E. program was created by Daryl Gates. Who is Daryl Gates? Daryl Gates is the police chief during the Rodney King attempted execution. And so this is the same individual who goes around the country telling young black kids that your parents, if they're on drugs, you should tell us that cops need to be in schools. By 1984, Reagan releases another report called Chaos in the Classroom. Again, flawed data, misleading data. And that data says that, you know, schools, these children are so unruly and so rude that we need police in schools. And so you start to see the shaping of education reform and crime reform merge. And then the backdrop of that, you have politicians, law enforcement, uh, first ladies calling black children thugs, crack babies and super predators. And now you have the the foundation to dispose of black children. We've got calls coming in. Let me go to Ken in Oakland. Ken, you're on. Uh, I just wanted to mention that it wasn't just um, public schools. Uh, my parents were teachers in Chicago, and they didn't like what was happening in the public schools back in the 70s. So they put me in private schools. Uh, I went to, to the Latin school in Chicago, and I remember at a certain point in the fourth grade, all of the black students, in particular the black male students, got stuck in one remedial reading and math class. And nobody knew why. There was no explanation um, my parents eventually pulled me out of the school, but, you know, no, no matter how well we performed, mm-hmm. they were going to, that was the box that we were going to be placed into. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that repeat itself throughout my education. I've, I've gotten a master's. Um, they try to do the same thing, thing to me there. I've seen the same thing happen in corporate America. You know, it's like, well, even though you may have the highest numbers or be in the highest bracket, there's just something not right about you, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 it's, and it's just, you know, I, I don't understand it, but, you know, I just thought I should throw that out there. Thanks. Ken, thanks for sharing. Thank you for saying that. And I think you made a great point is no matter how hard you worked, you were always going to be in that box. And I think that's 
the struggle and the fight that we are trying to talk about and get people to understand that black folks can work as hard as they try. We, you know, we, we work. We built this country. We stand. We get up every day and we contribute to this country. And no matter what we do, we are not seen as equal. So thank you for your story. You talked with Rob, um, and you changed the names, I should say, for your book so that, you know, you could protect the people who were t- sharing their stories. And one of the things that you point about point out about Rob was also, which is also a jumping off point for, for seeing and understanding the data that show that black kids were punished at very different rates than white kids for the same things. Mm-hmm. But he's a guy who's getting B's and C's but keeps getting suspended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Rob is... Just a, a guy who, you know, he wasn't this great student, but he's a he's a he's a good kid. He's getting C's, he's getting B's, he's coming to school, he's rambunctious, he's moving his body, he's a kid. He's doing what kids do, and he starts to see as a, at an early age how he's suspended for the same thing that he can see his other white his other peer white peers do. He starts to see at an early age how. You know, when he does something, he's reprimanded. He started to see how at an early age, when he stopped coming to school, nobody called. And by 16, he just stopped coming. And he said, no, nobody called. And it just goes to show, you know, what I tried to really show in the book, I didn't want to focus on like these really extreme cases. I wanted people to see the everyday people, just regular black folk, just regular black kids who are just... You know, I say in the book, you shouldn't have to be extraordinary to get what's ordinary. And that's too often what we see. And so I just wanted to paint the picture of just a regular black boy coming out of Atlanta, Georgia, who, you know, just comes to school every day and doesn't want any trouble and still could not get an education and couldn't gu- couldn't get the guidance that he needed. Yeah, he dropped out. Um, no one ever reached out, as you said, when he stopped coming to class. There's another thing that you write. That I was really affected by. You write the cruelest part of the so-called reform efforts that have shaped education in the past four decades is that they have relied on and taken advantage of black people's aspirations. Can you say more? Yeah. You know, the very idea, particularly in the South, that we would have a public education system is a black idea. Du Bois talks about this in, you know, his book Reconstruction, is that after, you know, the Civil War Reconstruction happens, black people build schools. That's the first thing newly freed black folks do in this country is we build schools and churches. And we fight for an education for our children. We go hard. We understand that education is liberation and we fight and we fight and we fight. And we are punished for that. Black folks believe in democracy. We believe in voting. We are punished for that. We believe in reform. We are punished for that. We send our kids to integrated schools. We are punished for that. Like the idea that we would hold up democracy and we would give to this country our very best and what we get in return is we are punished. And so you see it all, I mean, civil rights, you know, we fought. You know, black folks protest. Oh, you're three-fifths a person? What do we do? We organize. We protest. We march. We strategize. Oh, we're going to put in a literacy test. Okay, we organize. We march. We protest. We strategize. We're going to put in a poll tax. We organize. We strategize. We march. We protest. Oh, you know what? We're going to put in a voter IDs. We organize. (laughs) Like, we are always trying 
to show this country that we are deserving of the very rights that other people have. And so, you know, for me, that's why the book is called Punished for Dreaming, because we dream of this democracy. We fight for this democracy and we are punished for believing in it. Punished, but also it almost what I got from your analysis was also that that dedication, that aspiration is is exploited. Yes. To be able to then put out (laughs) policies that would keep the status quo. Yes, because, you know, we know how important education is and we fight for education. And so when we're in schools and they know that black parents are going to do anything and everything to get their kids to good schools. So here we are with charter schools. We have vouchers. We have all of these things that say, here's a choice. And I argue in the book that school choice is the scraps after white folks have divvied up what they want and then they call it school choice. And then it's predatory to a certain point. You see schools that have gift cards if you come to this school. You see schools that have all of these little rewards and trinkets if you come to this school. Why? Just make all of our schools good schools. So it's almost predatory because we want education so badly. And you have people who prey on that idea and create charter schools that they know are not going to do a good job, create curriculum that they have no experience in creating that curriculum. And they bust our kids all around You are preying on us because you know how deeply and profoundly black folks believe in education. We tell our children that education is the key. And you have people who exploit that very idea of how much and how hard black folks fight for education. You spare no presidential administration when it comes to (laughs) educational policy. Every single one from Nixon to Obama. That is correct. I mean... Is it just a function of trying to do it from the top that's problematic, from the top of government? No, I think that I think it is the idea that these policies will impact people without understanding the history of racism, white supremacy, underfunding. Like you you can't just we can take, you know, race to the top. Right. That's Obama's. That was his educational platform. Race to the top. You can't race to the top with one leg tied behind your back. You can't race to the top with one leg tied behind your back and your arm tied behind your back. You have to address the inequalities in the system before you race to the top. Because if you race to the top, you're assuming that everybody's running the same race. And so educational policy reform, even from a presidential level, never tries to address the inequality, never tries to address address the system at play and how it functions in every people's everyday lives. Bettina Love's book is Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. We'll get into more about her ideas for how we heal after the break. Listeners, if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786, the number. Social channels uh, are at KQED Forum. The email address is forum at kqed.org. Share your experiences of being a student in high school or college or Share your thoughts on how you think we make up for the harms that love describes that were caused by these so-called education reform policies. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Bettina Love, William F. Russell Professor at Teachers College at Columbia University, who talks about how educational policies that took hold in the 80s have caused lasting harm to black students in her new book, Punished for Dreaming. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with your thoughts and questions about education reform and particularly its impact on black students. But I want to get into the healing part. And one of the ways that you say we can heal is through reparations. And you've commended, Bettina Love, California's efforts on reparations. You point out that uh, it's really done something, taken it seriously in a way that a lot of states have not yet. But at the same time, you say that education hasn't really factored into it very prominently. Why is it important? to focus on education. There's been housing, there's, there's been other things, but why education? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I'm deeply uh, impacted by the work that California is doing, and I hope that it continues and we really get some real results from it. But I also think, when you think about reparations in this country, there are some levers for reparations. So traditionally, we think about being a black person and being denied a home loan because of you are black. Being a black person and not getting a business loan or having your business or your home devalued because you are a black person or paying more in an interest rate because you are a black person. We think about reparations. We think about reparations in terms of mass incarceration and police brutality. And I think all of those are significant and profound uh, levers for reparations. But I would argue that before you are denied a home loan, before you are denied a business loan, before your business is devalued, you are educated in America's public schools as a black child. And that system is doing harm to you. And it's doing the type of harm to you where we have to start to qualify. We have to start to quantify that harm to say, listen, the harm that's being done is impacting the potential of my lifelong earning potential. So I'll give you a few numbers. I'll give your audience a few numbers. In 2010, there was about 100,000 black students who qualified for AP classes but did not take AP classes, were not enrolled in AP classes. 100,000 black students, they had the grades, they had the test scores, but because their school did not offer AP classes or they were not recommended by their teacher for AP classes, those 100,000 students did not attend AP, were not enrolled in AP classes. Now, why that's important, because those 100,000 students go off to college and pay more in their student tuition because they don't have those credits to roll over into AP classes. That's reparations. I, I was denied these things and now I'm paying more. Or when you suspend a child in this country, when you suspend a child, that child doesn't go home with a check. That child doesn't go home with resources or a laptop or assist uh, teachers, anything. You just suspend the child. But everybody still gets paid. That child is home by themselves. And we know black children are disproportionately suspended. And so when we think about the harm that's being done, we can't just see it as data points anymore. We have to understand that you are impacting the rest of my life their earning potential, what I'll be able to make, how I'll be able to support my family, 
The education that I am getting because I am black in this country is having a profound impact on the rest of my life and what I'm potentially able to do. And we have to see that as reparation. Well, what are your thoughts on this listener's comment on Discord? This listener writes, if reparations are invested in correcting the problems, making education real and delivering quality education to every student, I'm all for it. If they're used to ensure every student of any race, gender, or otherwise marginalized status gets an honest reflection of the world they live in and how to deal with it, I'm all for reparations. If they are used to see that accurate, honest histories and representations of social realities are on the shelves of school libraries, I'm for it. If they are actually used to enable those dreams, I fully approve. If they are simply used to put cash in someone's pocket as a form of apology to be quickly spent and forgotten and change nothing, I'm not in favor of reparations. So I hope this reader gets the book because in my book, what I say is that, yes, compensation is important. And I want to be very clear. You can't ask for repair and then want to say, well, this is how we're going to repair it. Actual repair has to come from the people who were harmed. So you can't say I'm for reparations, but I'm only for this type of reparations. You are not harmed. And so the people who actually did the harm, who, the people who are actually harmed, they get to say how they would like repair to be done. That's not for you to say. But I also say in the book that the truth and the fullness of reparations is compensation, but it's also stopping harm. That's what repair actually means, that you stop the harm, that you transform the system, that you atone for harm. And so all the things that the caller said is that that's what I'm arguing for as well. But I'm also not going to say, hey, harm was done to you. And we're not going to talk about the harm that was done to you. We're not going to give you anything, any type of compensation for that harm. But we want this. No, harm was done. And you have changed the course of my family's life. And let's be clear, many other groups in this country have gotten reparations. And so this is this is not something that I think people who have not been harmed, you should be supporting how the survivors want their harm to be repaired. You also say that checks aren't transformational, but that reparations isn't only about redress. It also has to be about an investment in Mm -hmm. the future. So what do you mean by that? Because I think if we understand reparations for black folks as not just impacting black people, it would it would strengthen our economy and it would also strengthen our schools. So we know that many of our schools, over 100,000 100, of our schools in this country are dilapidating. They don't have, we have schools in this country that don't have clean water. I'm in San Francisco, Oakland. You had teachers who were protesting last year. They have, the HVACs are polluting not only children, but teachers. You know, Erica Miner says that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions in this country. So we need 21st century state-of-the-art schools to be built. That would create jobs for everybody. We need teachers to, be, to make not only just a living wage, we need teachers to be paid like true professionals that they are. One in five teachers in this country moonlights. One in five teachers in this country moonlights. So reparations for public education would also ensure that all teachers actually make a wage like they are true professionals. Now, who would that impact? 88% of teachers in this country are white women. So they would be deeply, profoundly impacted by if we had educational reparations that just beyond the check. So we're talking about democracy here. We're not just talking about what what would benefit these groups of people. Yes, it would benefit black children and black families, but the fullness of reparations would impact all of our all of our children and make schools better for all. Let me go to caller Dan in Palo Alto. Dan, you're on. Thanks for waiting. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I was part of a voluntary integration program at Kennedy High School in Richmond in the 70s. And um, the attempt at sort of integrating the school might have been successful. They bust white kids into the school. But if you looked at the classrooms, almost all the AP classes mm-hmm. were 95% white. And if I go to my high school reunions, um, it's really clear the trajectory that people were put on. Um, the kids who were in the AP classes went on to college and graduate education. And a lot of the other kids look at you know, high school as the peak of their lives. And past then, their successes were quite limited. And you can integrate, but you have to be serious about it. Well, Dan, thanks for sharing your reflections, your memory, your experience um, of that as well. You know, what is your response to people who are tempted to say, well, sure, that happened in places, right? But it didn't happen in my jurisdiction. How do you help people see maybe their own individual educational experiences as connected to national policy as the greater truth being what you argue, if it's not something they saw with their own eyes? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really great question because I think too often survivors of any type of harm have to prove that this happened to them. And that's why in the book I didn't want to just talk about policy. I wanted real people's stories behind the policy so people could understand that there's there's a policy, there's a reform effort And like your caller just said, on face value, you can say, well, we integrated the school. Yes, of course. And then when you start to pull back the layers, you understand, oh, yeah, you integrated on the surface. And so when people say, well, that wasn't my experience, that didn't happen to me. I say to them, you are fortunate. That's wonderful that that didn't happen to you. I'm happy that that didn't happen to you. But you shouldn't have to go through pain and trauma to understand somebody else's pain and trauma. Like that's where empathy comes in. That's where understanding comes in. And so this happened on a national level and you just have to believe the survivors of this. You have to understand that policies were not intended to do the egalitarian efforts. They were intended to harm people. And I think many policies were intended to harm. You know, three strikes was intended to harm Broken windows theory, no excuses, right? These things are intended to harm. And so just because it didn't happen to you, you should be happy that it didn't happen to you and have more empathy to understand that it did happen to millions of black children and millions of children of color. Where is public education headed? You were talking about the situation with teachers and teacher salaries and things like that. And we are staring down, you know, a teacher shortage crisis Mm -hmm. at this moment. um, Schools have become you know, a flashpoint for political ideology, fights around um, views about all sorts of things, a site for culture wars. They are losing enrollment. They are losing resources. Where is public education headed? I wish I had a better outlook, but I don't. You know, all I would say to that question is that Public education is the backbone of our democracy. Free and open elections, free press, 
and public education. That That's what makes us a democracy. That's what makes us a country to strive to be better at. And when you don't have a thriving, thoughtful, complex public education system, and we know it's never going to be great. We're, we're not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we had something and it was torn. You know, it's always been problematic. But when you have a public education system where we can't have dialogue, where we can't have a different of opinions, and where we can't say this is the public, and everybody gets represented here. Everybody gets a voice here. This is the public. And when you don't have that, you are teetering on not having a thoughtful, loving, compassionate democracy. And I think that's what's scary about where we're heading right now. It's because I believe that everybody should come to the table. I believe that everybody is important and everybody's voice should come to the table. But we can't come to the table and deny other people voices because you believe that your voice, your opinion, it matters the most. That is not what public education is and that is not what democracy is. And so we have to be very cautious the way we move the next four to five years around public education to the fact that we won't have it anymore. And so we're seeing these efforts and we have to understand these efforts may seem as just the right against the left and they don't want this book and they don't want that book banned, but it's actually to privatize education. That is the undercurrent of what is happening. It is to make a crisis. To make believe to make people believe that public education is failing so badly. We're going we're going right back to 1983 to make people believe that education is failing so badly and that teachers can't be trusted. And since education is failing so badly, guess what we got to do? We have to privatize it. And so this is a bigger plan than just uh, a book ban. This is really a well executed plan to privatize education and make people believe that this public good, this public entity cannot be trusted anymore. They are manufacturing a crisis. Bettina Love is a professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. Her new book is Punished for Dreaming How School Reform Harms Black Children. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It is pretty breathtaking, the formula, I think, as you describe it. Um, that you feel like we are on at this point. I think the question that many are left with, regardless of how much they understand, um, you know, what kind of legislative reforms are possible or reparations or so on, that we are living this in this moment now. And any kind of major, you know, structural change is going to be really hard to achieve and take a really long time. So I guess I would say, what are strategies that that schools, we, the public, can do, um, you know, to try to address some of these things or to be truly, you know, repair, as you say, is what's needed? So I'm encouraged. And let me tell you why I'm encouraged. If you think about charter schools, vouchers, massive student loan debt, police in school, Teach for America, No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top. When we think about all those policies, we have to understand it's only been 40 years. It has only been 40 years. And I think this hap- we, we say these things as if they are ubiquitous, as if they've been around forever. Standardized testing, like standardized testing has not been around forever. 
We're talking about the last really 40 years, really steadfast, the last 20 years. We have an opportunity to change these things. It has not been like this forever. If you talk to somebody in their 60s and their 70s, they have no clue what we're talking about with charter schools and massive student loan debt. You ask somebody 70 years old, you mean to tell me you ran up a $150,000 bill at school? What is going on, baby? Like they are like, what is? We have an opportunity to change this. And if you look around the country and you see young people who are protesting, young people who are walking out of schools and saying, I, I deserve to learn my history. When you see parents organizing, saying that my child is going to learn their history. When you see groups that are saying, listen, everybody gets to come to the table. But when everybody comes to the table, you are not going to deny my humanity. I'm encouraged by so many young people who are doing this work. I'm encouraged by young queer and trans youth who are saying, I am here. You're not going to deny my existence. I think we are at a moment right now where we're seeing young people who are determined to be seen, determined to be heard. And I'm encouraged by just their courage to keep going and keep fighting. So I am, I don't get, I don't get, I don't get, I don't, I don't have a sense of despair. I'm not down. Uh, I'm ready to go because I believe in us and I believe in my ancestors. And so we have, it is not like black folks have not been here before. It is not new to us. It is true to us. So we will keep fighting. We will keep going. And we may not ever get the results, the end goal that we want. Um, but we will always fight for this democracy, even when we are denied it. Well, the sister writes, as an African-American person, I see the ways my people are disadvantaged because no matter how much parents may desire a good education for our children, isn't the education of the parents a key determining factor in predicting how our children will perform? Would a focus on parental education have a greater impact? What do you think about that? So I always say this, you know, there is no or. There's always and. Of course. And this and that and this. I mean, these systems are so complex. There is no one key like we need multiple solutions multiple keys so yes but I also want to be very clear and I think you know many of the folks who have called in you can kind of piece together if I'm a parent and I've had these type of educational experiences this is the trauma that I have this is what I know education to be so I can only I can only go from what I've experienced as a parent and so I've been denied access as a parent. I haven't had any good teachers as a parent. I felt harmed as a parent. So this is the experience that I'm going to teach my children in. And so, yes, parental guidance and parental support is important, but I'm also a human being and I only have the experiences that I have. And so I don't want to put everything on parents because parents were students once too. Well, Dr. Love, it's really been a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My thanks to listeners and Susie Britton and Jericho Reininger for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.